Welcome to this, the 15th in a rambling series, Talking Terminal. Today, a good friend living in Scotland talks about lockdown in Paisley before the further restrictions were added in the last couple of days by Nicola Sturgeon. A brief description of the difficulties in leaving home and the joy of having managed to do so and travelling a little bit. A very quick book review and some future thoughts about podcasts. If this is your cure for insomnia, I very much hope you sleep well and otherwise enjoy. Let's start with the interview with Alison, who is based in Scotland, in Paisley, actually, and works with Syrian refugees, is a mother of a wonderful and complex family, and has real experience of both the early lockdown in the Paisley and Glasgow areas, and what it's like living in a rather wet and cold area of the United Kingdom. Alison has offered to provide subtitles for those listeners who find her accent strong. I find it simply enjoyable. So welcome, <laughs> Alison. I've already warned people to listen carefully to the Paisley gorgeous accent. Absolutely. And you were, I was very struck. You, you're living on the edge of a city with a really complex rising set of cases when Scotland was doing so well. Uh, you work in probably one of the most challenging environments around refugees and asylum seekers and the support they need while the government in Westminster takes forever and a day to make decisions when, oddly enough, we used to get the decisions made within 28 days. Absolutely. Uh, sometime, in, sometime in the past when you and I had something to do with it, but shush. I'm sure it's all a lot more complicated now. Um, and I'm very struck also, and, you know, I'm hoping you could explain some of this, is what's the experience like? And what's it like for children and young people, particularly as I know the school system means that people are back at school somewhat earlier than they have been in England, and I think a bit of Wales. And just wanted to know how you were and what your experience of that whole second tranche of worry is like. So over to you. Thank you. It's um, It's been a real challenge, I think, um, more so given that in the last week, um, my area has also now gone into a second lockdown. Glasgow was first uh, because the numbers were rising. Um, and then uh, Renfrewshire has, has followed as well. And initially we were told it would be a two-week lockdown, but it's now looking like being nearer four to six weeks. So that is a challenge in itself because people were sort of starting to find some form of normality settling in. The schools in particular, it's it's been a huge challenge for young people. I worry so much about the mental health of young people. They've gone from having months of no school, no friends, no sport, no fun. Um, and a lot of people have really struggled with that. Our own grandson in particular has struggled with it. Um, a boy who is very sporty and plays sport seven this, days a week. Is this the gorgeous, successful boxer? It is indeed, but he's also a very good footballer. So he's gone from seven days a week to nothing. But this is only in the last couple of weeks he's been reintroduced. He can play football. He can go back to boxing. Um, 
But the schools returned here sort of about the 10th of August, round about then. Um, our holidays start in June rather than in sort of July. Um, it's the weather. It's because of the weather. Yeah, yeah. Even it doesn't matter when they have them, the weather's still rubbish. <laughs> we don't get them. We don't get only you, only you could say that. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it started back at school mid-August, 12th went of August. Back at school mid-August, yeah. and it was a staggered return to school. But even at that, the, the sort of two weeks before the children went back, the teachers were working incredibly hard to introduce this new blended learning where children would only be in set hours a couple of days a week. And then almost overnight, the government retracted that and said, no, we'll get them all back full time. So that was about, you know, it was a bit of uncertainty. So children have returned. The school, the idea in the schools is every window in the school is open all day. The children are not allowed to wear jackets in the classroom. They're not allowed to wear sweaters. They have to wear their shirt sleeves. And um, on top of that, PE, which is a big thing, um, particularly for Tyler, um, that has to be done outside no matter the weather. Now... (laughs) As we've said, it's a very wet place. So if you've had a double session of PE in the you know heavy rain, um, and then you're in a classroom with all the windows open and in your shirt sleeves, it's not particularly pleasant. So what then happened was, as happens regardless of lockdown or COVID or anything, children return to school and they all get a dose of the sniffles. It's just what happens. But <laughs> this local authority went into panic mode and said anybody with present with any symptoms had to have a COVID test done and could only return to school if it was negative. So the whole system got backed up with parents trying to get testing done for the children, which wasn't necessary at all. And it just made a, a mockery, really. It sounds like you're being slightly forgiving of Dido Harding. <laughs> I'm very surprised at that. You've you've carved out an excuse for her. (laughs) Just back for a moment to the lockdown. What are the technical implications for you as a household? So this level of lockdown is I can't visit anyone else's home and no one else can visit my home. Um, I can see my grandchildren because um, I do some of the, the childcare for them. So that's allowed. I could meet my family in a pub if I wanted. That's okay, but they can't come into the house. Um, It's a bit bizarre. And you are one of so many people who've said that, uh, you know, that there's something inconsistent. I, for what it's worth, which is very little, I have a slightly different view, which is you've basically got a whole series of levers that you need to pull to reduce these and they don't necessarily have to align so it's about minimizing risk not making the risk vanish so there is risk about you meeting family in the pub but somehow there may be greater risk if you're all indoors at home and you've just got to basically make some choices about which really matters I, i totally understand that i think I think bearing in mind this is the west of Scotland and alcohol is a big thing here, as you know. So when people go to the pub in the west of Scotland... When you say, as you know, are you suggesting personal experience on my part? You've been in plenty pubs in the west of Scotland. I forget them all. <laughs> um, 
So I have. When, people, when people are in the pub, they have too much to drink. They get overly friendly and they start to hug and all oh, this. So what is the difference? You know, I'm probably less likely to do that than most people, believe it or not. I'm not really a very touchy-feely person. So, um, but... Uh, I understand it, I get it, but there's so many people who don't, and young people in particular are becoming fairly rebellious about all of this. They're not wearing masks, they're you know, saying it's the government are trying to control us all, and there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the background. So the next few months should be interesting. <laughs> and how long is the lockdown likely to be? You said you thought a month started at two weeks. Yeah, I think, I think they're talking about the beginning of October to have a review. Um, but the the Glasgow one, bearing in mind they were a, a, a couple of weeks ahead of us, they're still in the same lockdown. So I don't foresee any major change unless the numbers start to drop considerably, and I don't think that's going to happen. And what about just that's worrying in many ways. Tell me a little about work, and particularly with refugees, because it's a group of people who are poor living in accommodation that none of us necessarily were over proud of just because of the limits on the amount of money that was available everybody still in hotels moved into hotels um that's more of an issue in the glasgow area <clears throat> and that's because they, they ran out of accommodation um and they, they used hotels the hotels are also used in general homelessness um, at the moment because they don't have the accommodation there either. Our project is slightly different because we're funded very differently than the asylum process is. So we can provide relatively decent accommodation and indeed we do. Um, but there are issues around the, you know, the face coverings, the not mixing together. You know, the, the Syrian families who where I deal with predominantly, you know, their answer is, well, I've come through a war zone. I don't need to worry about a bit of the sniffles, is what they'll kind of say. So it's trying to get the balance, getting the information across to them, communicating with them. And obviously we still can't do face-to-face contact. We're not allowed to at the moment. Um so it's uh, text messages, it's welfare calls, it's written letters to them in Arabic explaining what's happening or what's not happening and why we need them to be mindful of, of what's going on. That must be very difficult indeed. I mean, th- those systems of communication, uh, however laudable, are not likely to be as impactful as... No, it's, uh, it's not. Time. And it's it doesn't sit well with me because that's not how I've got our project set up. It's very much a hands-on. It's very much the door's always open, come and speak to us at any time. And um, so have, having gone from a, a very hands-on project to a couple of phone calls a week, it really, it's not good. But in saying that, the families today have been fine with it. You know, they're, they're keeping in contact but they're still also getting together in large groups and having parties and not wearing face coverings. And you're feeling safe and sound as a family and as a manager of a group of workers? Yeah, I've got a fantastic team round about me. So, um, you know, we I have regular sort of three or four Zoom calls with them every week. Um, we have managed to meet up as a team socially distancing. I'm already prepared for when we can return to work and by 
um, splitting my team into two so that there'll only ever be half the team working in the office at any one time. My thinking is if somebody gets sick, I only lose half the team. I don't lose everyone. So um, we've got that in place. At home, we're all fine. We're all well. Um, I don't go anywhere other than if I have to go into work or to do a bit of shopping. I haven't, I'm not socialising at all, which is not like me. As you know. I was going to say, that must be, if you worry about Tyler, why worry about you then? Um, well, listen, we should catch up again in a few weeks' time just to see what the progress on all of this is. But for now, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that slice of work and family life with us. And be very interesting to see how that compares with what's going on in parts of England, Wales and Northern Ireland in due course. Thank you so much, Alison. Always a joy. Oh, thank you. And I can provide subtitles if it's required. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? That was such an interesting view from another part of the United Kingdom or another part of the world if you live in America or are listening from sub-Saharan Africa. I thought I might talk about travel, and that's my very crude link. I've been stuck mainly in the house in London for many weeks. And we decided to spend a bit of time visiting friends and staying in an hotel that we really like. The hotel I've mentioned in a previous blog, but I thought I would talk a little about the process of departing from the house. I don't mean physically leaving it. I mean the emotional and psychological process, having been stuck in the house for really quite a long time. There was an anticipatory worry about it all, being away from the hospital or being away from proximity to the hospital, making sure I had the right concoction of drugs, making sure I had all the relevant health records if I did need to access health care in another part of the United Kingdom, as well as what we were going to experience in terms of COVID precautions. The hotel was absolutely fine. We'd been there in uh, late July uh, after the lockdown had ended, but they had imposed some really good biosecurity arrangements. And the hotel, the pig at Bridge Place in Kent, continued to be a combination of understated luxury without being over the top, good biosecurity without being overimposing, and just comfortable an environment in which to relax, which we managed to do with very good friends. At the end of three days, we made an adventure to the southwest to see friends near Bath. And that involved a fairly long drive along a road known for traffic jams. There were very few of them. And then on to see the friends in very wet and unpleasant weather. There were two things I particularly wanted to highlight. The first was just being away from an environment that we love a great deal but were slightly sick of was invigorating in all sorts of ways. And the second observation I had was you don't have to go on a big holiday to really achieve both relaxation and reinvigoration. So we did very little with our friends. The weather was so bad, there was a storm that we stayed indoors most of the time. I went for a couple of walks, but got completely drenched. Other than that, we stayed indoors. We spoke, we 
read, we ate, and we just relaxed. And just the process of doing those things with very good friends who know us and we know them uh, well over many years just was a transformational joy. And I just encourage people to think not about the frustrations of not being able to go to France or Spain without needing to isolate for 14 days, but how to go somewhere and see people that you love and the benefits you can get from that without enormous difficulties. Well, let's move on to a quick comment about a book I've recently read, another of the C.J. Sanson series, the Shard Lake series. This was number six, Lamentation, a marvellous description of England under Henry VIII in the very last six to nine months of his reign, his marriage to Catherine Parr, and the way in which the court operated with factions of reformists and conservatives and the way in which individuals got caught up in the serious machinations of a political elite that was essentially ruthless. So not entirely dissimilar to aspects of the current political system in the United Kingdom. The book is typically well-written, superbly researched and highly engaging. Some reviewers suggest it's one of those books that you want to read in one sitting. It may be that I'm a slow reader, but it would be a very long sitting as it is a very full book, descriptive, fulsome in its facts and quite long as well, but a real cliffhanger and has some very surprising endings, which really kept me fascinated. Only one more in the series to go. That, in many ways, like great series of books, can leave one feeling quite sad. I'd strongly commend it. C.J. Sanson, Lamentation. Before ending, I just wanted to mention that this will be the last in series one of Talking Terminal. There'll be a new series in the next two weeks, and we're going to start by featuring Elliot in Israel, who a lot of people really enjoyed hearing from. So I wanted an update from him, and I think there are some fascinating things to learn about his experience in another country. If you have anything you want to contribute, just email me, jeremy at talkingterminal.com, and I will make arrangements to get you onto the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've slept well. <laughs>